0: Comment and share. All right, good morning everyone. It's CJ and we are live. Welcome to another edition of Rogue Mornings. So I'm very excited to be delivering another show. Uh, it's Wednesday already. This week is quickly flying by. Uh, I am also delighted to share that today I'll be uh, joined by London Paul of the Series Report. So Paul, good morning. Thank you so much for joining.
1: Well, good morning, uh, CJ. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, while V's away, we'll, well it's better to do this sort of morning show with someone else. Or something <laughs> it's kind of boring talking proper. to yourself, Paul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you don't start answering yourself, you'll be fine. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. That's when you have to worry. Is when you start giving the answers to the questions you ask. So, yeah, uh, real quick before we jump into it, I do want to also thank our show sponsors, uh, MyCBedibles. Uh, go to MyCBedibles.com. Learn about all the delicious CBD products. Also, Remain Calm, if you need in the need of either collection problems, make sure to visit remaincom.net. And also the Crypto School, I'll get with the crypto guys today and see if uh, they want to go on and do a live show uh, later on today. So I will reach out to them later on. So the Crypto School uh, that you can find on the link on Remain Calm. And then also LiquidBase, if you need to, uh, holding a certain amount of, of uh, crypto and you want to need to liquidate, find out about the ways that LiquidBase can help you at liquidbase.io. Uh, so, Paul, let's let's jump into it. There's a lot to discuss today, as always, and before we went live, we shared a little bit around what most of the headlines are carrying nationally, and that's to do with this Amarosa, this former Apprentice star turned president, uh, presidential advisor. What
1: say you? Yeah, I just, I think it's just another example, it's just a huge, gigantic distraction from i mean yeah you know someone's got a book to publicize so they're gonna they're gonna come out and try and make the headlines but it's just an utter distraction from from what you know from the reality of what needs to be dealt with in the u.s and you know it makes great media headlines and and you know i think trump's come back with with some some aplomb in tweets um and it, it really probably would have been best just to have ignored it, and rather than sort of respond to it, because it's a, you know, it's a five-day wonder; it'll be all forgotten, and then we'll kind of move, obviously, onto something else um, in the process. But yeah, it's just symptomatic of Trump's presidency that all these issues seem to overshadow the important matters that, you know, the mainstream media just doesn't want to address, and uh, that's really the the most damning. I think indictment of the whole uh, affair.
0: Yeah, I mean, S- Sand- Sarah Sanders Huckabee, I, if I butchered her name, I apologize, but I do know it's Sanders Huckabee somewhere in there, Sarah Sanders <laughs> Huckabee. But she made a valid point, and her point was this, Paul, was that isn't it kind of funny how while Amarosa was a, a White House advisor that no one paid her any mind at all, right? Like she was you know, completely ignored, no one paid any attention, but now... Now that she's left the White House and she's out on the media stumping for her new book and promoting it and talking all these things about Trump said this, Trump said that. They are giving her all the attention in the world. And this, again, I think is going to uh, blow back on the media. People get this. People understand it. You know, the the, the dying legacy media one time would like to believe that they could do this and it's going to electrify the electorate. It's going to change people's minds. But those days have passed. Paul, well, I, th- I think that people see right past this of, of what it is of uh, her just promoting this book uh, without factual. I guess the president came out, uh, said there's I did not use the N word back in the days of The Apprentice. I I did not uh, you know use that word and the white house came out and said uh, sarah sanders said she cannot confirm that but regardless uh you know there's a lot more important things so uh, but unfortunately it's things like this that just gripped the national attention for a while uh there is one thing that i would say and this goes back to a little bit around uh, the administration something back to to my hiring days paul is that you know we're accountable for who we hire and, and who we bring aboard so i think this more not that i'm going to take the opportunity to slam the president about it but this also kind of reveals you know again systematic decisions on who he brings in the inner circles as advisors and why he chooses to do those things so hopefully he learns from this and he's very selective on his next white house advisors that move in there's a a lot more uh people with a lot better credentials that could give a lot better advice than someone that was on the apprentice
1: yeah, no, I agree. I think that I mean we, without bashing Trump too much in this regard, we've talked about this pretty much since he became president. Or I mean, I I mean, I first show we did was January twenty seventeen, so it was after just you know before his inauguration, but since then he's made a lot of, I think, appointments that are ill advised, and that's been polite. I mean, and. You know, not just necessarily in the inner circle. I don't know whether Bolton's part of the inner circle or isn't, but I mean, we, you know, people like that. I think it's questionable as to why he's employed certain people in roles, and when it's very obviously very detrimental. But in this case, it's uh, someone in in the inner circle. You have to be absolutely certain that you have one hundred percent loyalty, and you know, and if, if someone leaves, that whatever's you know discussed. Inside the four walls of the Oval Office, or wherever else, stays there. I mean that. You know, I mean you have to rely on those people, and if you're getting people who don't do that for whatever reason, and in the process, we don't know to what extent she sensationalised things for a book. I don't know, no way of knowing, and we can't really discuss that. But anyway, it just doesn't reflect well, in you know, in terms of his choice. But I think you absolutely make the valid point that in the end, that the US um, people are just going to sit there and go. Yeah, you know, I'm. We're just fed up with this. I think. I think more and more. In fact, if anything, it's getting more people to want to vote for Trump because they're fed up with this this endless bashing. And they, if they can't get him to do with Russia, they're going to try and you know rake up something else in the process. And and it's damaged the mainstream media. I think they've done more damage to themselves than than even Trump's done. But I think Trump, you know, one of those things. He threw the hand grenade, walked out, and the whole thing's blown up in their face in the process. So, you know of course. It's like, you know, crying wolf once too often. I think in the end people are saying, you know, we're just sick to death of this. I mean, if there's, if there's a problem with Trump and there's a major issue, then, you know, fair enough. But, I mean, if you're just going to have this kind of media speculation all the time. You know, the truth is, if there ever was something, I think people have got to the point. They just wouldn't take any notice of it in the main. I mean, you're always going to get people who are very pro-Democrat or pro-whatever, you know, a particular persuasion is, and they're always going to look for any opportunity to, um, to lambast Trump. But I think in the process that it'd be interesting to know just how many people were sort of sitting on the fence during the Trump administration. And now kind of got on the basis of all this have gone, you know, actually I think we, we might kind of move towards the, you know, more in in sympathetic with Trump. And I have in the course of being on Twitter over the last six months, particularly, seen people who said you know i was a democrat now i've moved over to the trump side because i'm fed up of, of what's gone on so yeah in a way they've i think they've kind of cut off the nose to spite their face in the process but yeah it's just best one of those things just move on and trump really also should just largely ignore it and not you know sort of waste time getting involved in some spat on twitter with someone you know just let them out there five minutes in in the limelight, and they'll very quickly disappear and everyone moves on. But I think sometimes when Trump responds, it, it's not really how a president should conduct himself, I think. Call me yeah. old-fashioned.
0: <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, I agree. I think that there's better words that could have been chosen than, than to call someone, a, you know, a dog, um,
1: I think. Oh, part. yeah, I mean, that's just completely ridiculous to do that. He should never have resorted to that. Yeah, he may have disagreements, but there's far, far more appropriate ways of phrasing it. But anyway,
0: yeah, very unprofessional if she if she did sign a, a non-disclosure agreement which you know most people uh, do any type of you know going into especially with you know politics right you know as far as releasing strategies and everything else on her uh, you know he very could have like pointed that back at her to say look at where is her guiding principles, where's her guiding principles? To sign a legal document that she would not disclose any of this information, what she's what what is she doing? She's out profiting for it. She's out there writing a book, strictly profiting for her financial benefit gain versus the care of to the American people of truly what needs to be done, causing a major distraction to this administration. He could have very easily went with that narrative and and probably probably politically, although I don't like scoring political points, but I think it would have came across a lot better versus you know calling someone a dog. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's shift gears a little bit, because something that a whole lot of conversation didn't take uh, place, Paul, and that's the uh, military spending bill that was recently signed. Looks like Trump signed the $716 billion military spending bill. Uh, that that $716 is, is with a B billion. Uh, yes. after, after Congress passed the bill earlier this month, President Trump on Monday signed the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, which it was kind of funny that Congress moved forward and they called it the John McCain <laughs> that's your, that's yeah. just to try yeah. to get John, just to try to get Trump to thank John McCain, and he didn't. Anyway, I'm yeah. sorry to make fun of that, but that's what the media focused on. Paul.
1: <laughs> yeah, but exactly. But again, it's another example. Yeah, I mean, he just, you know, I mean, isn't it, it's obvious <laughs> there's no love lost between McCain and Trump. I think that's that's pretty obvious. But it, yeah, it's it's one of those things that. I mean, we spoke about this previously, and there's a strange irony in the U.S. economy that if you slash uh, defense spending, the U.S. goes into recession. Yeah, and this has happened throughout history, and of course, yeah, because the huge amount of, of money spent on on in, in military terms and also in arms sales, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you, I think the thing that's kind of interesting, of course, Trump made this big thing about wanting to create this space force. Um, but there was apparently no money's been earmarked in this uh, spending bill for that. And I think, you know, someone asked me about, the, what did I think about this? And I said, well, if the US manages to ever achieve anything, I mean, I think it's one of those projects, it, a lot of money will get spent and and then you'll look back and go, well, was it money well spent? And of course, that's never the case with the, the so-called military industrial complex. But I, I made the point that if the US does actually create a space force that the chinese and russians will have a welcoming party for them when they get up there because of course they already have a presence in that regard which <laughs> so that will be a bit of and i think that's why they're trying to join the space race as well or whatever space weapons or whatever because yeah the chinese and the russians already have uh, a a space force as trump refers to it i mean there is some interesting things where it talks about you know, trying to to grasp the issue of, of providing arms for terrorists in, in Syria and the like. And of course, this has been a huge problem because undoubtedly <clears throat> in the war in Syria, as time's gone by and more and more of Syria has been liberated, particularly the South recently, the amount of Western and US weapons and Israeli weapons, for that matter, that were found uh, with day operatives etc is, is, is perhaps not surprising but it's a huge problem and there's the argument well were they being armed directly or was it indirectly because at times the US will arm nations and then they go and sell the arms on the black market and they end up you know in the hands of terrorists in the end so there's various ways they can end up with it but yeah there needs to be far better scrutiny as to how weapons are sold and who they're sold to and And I think in a way it's something we've spoken about and I've spoken about to podcast subscribers for a long time that the U.S. is looking for ways to to get out of the likes of Syria and get out of, and Yemen's another, it's a Vietnam for Saudi Arabia and, and indirectly it's a kind of, it's not a Vietnam for the U.S., but their involvement is getting more and more, you know, questionable. And, of course, all these ugly events were, the Saudis seem to be targeting civilian targets and then going, oh, well, actually, it was a mistake. And, uh, you know, bombing schools and, and countless other places in the process. And, and the U.S. is going, well, actually, you know, we're going to have to look at getting out of this mess. And why did we ever get involved in the first place? So there are some positives in that regard. But it comes back to the point is that I think to, to some extent, there was, there was a belief, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, but during the Obama administration, not so much necessarily the military spending, but certainly there was a lot of very disgruntled military personnel with regards to campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan particularly and what went on. And I think the Obama administration was deeply unpopular, and Trump came in saying, well, you know, I want to address that. You know, the military has a lot of inferior equipment, and, you know, we're going to have this huge spending spree in terms of updating hardware and, uh, and providing better, I think, you know, pension facilities and also better treatment of veterans, which, you know, was a big problem in the and always perceived to be a big problem in the Obama administration. But I think overall it's still a ridiculous spend amount to be spent. And we said yesterday it would, a lot of that money would be better spent on infrastructure, which would benefit all Americans in the process, rather than, I think there's in a in a way, Trump's trying to appease the military and keep them on side, and doesn't want to uh, to lose face with them. But in but in the process, I think at times he's, you know, they made some bad decisions, and you know, I think in retrospect, the the missile attack, which was largely thwarted in Syria after the complete false flag chemical weapons attack in Douma, was was an example where it was act in haste and repent at leisure, and they made some big mistakes, and I don't think the military are exactly thrilled about that, but they're never going to complain about a large military budget. And in the end, of course, th- it is true, if you slash the budget, the U.S. economy is going to suffer. I mean, it's kind of a bit of a perverse thing to say, but that's you know, if you look back through history, that's what happens. But, you know... Th- I think, you know, there's also part in the bill with some elements where they were saying they were going to force the military into better reporting of aspects of the wars to Congress. I think there does need to be better, you know, a liaison between what the military are doing in Congress. And I also think there needs to be some more input where I don't think it's a good idea that, you know, that necessarily that Trump makes a decision we're just going to go in and launch missiles. and You know, there needs to be, some congressional approval in terms of military action, and but then there again, we need to make sure that the balance is right, and also that you no know, Congress is doing the job it's supposed to be doing. Which and the Senate, and of course, we know largely that is is not the case, even though there's been some improvement through the Trump administration. I mean, and it does say you know past reporting requirements were largely not complied with and they've they've addressed those in this ndaa so i think this there's some positives in it but once again it's whether they're actually implemented it's all well and good writing them and then people pay lip service trump signs off the bit this uh, bill and then no one implements any of it but certainly from my impression i've got over the last year or so is that trump he you know, he wants to have, you know, a first rate first class military, but not to have bases all around the world and not to be fighting pointless wars that have cost the US trillions of dollars over decades and, and have achieved absolutely nothing. I mean Afghanistan's a great example of, of that in in that regard. And and then it's the huge loss of civilian life, it's the loss of, of military personnel, which has been very damaging morale damaging to to the military in the process and i think they're the important lessons and then the other lessons need to be is don't embark on projects like the f-35 where you wasted basically a trillion dollars and uh, and nothing there's no it's never flown in a combat mission and there's repeatedly problems with it we have problems with u.s missile defense systems as well and the list goes on and on so the question is there needs to be yeah if you're going to spend the money and then spend it wisely and spend it in a way that, you know, there is some benefit in doing so. I mean, the Russians particularly have proved that, and the Chinese are now starting to demonstrate that they, you know, they've they spent money wisely, and they spent a fraction, of course, of what the U.S. spends militarily. So I think that there are some important lessons to be learned in that regard. But, I mean, I think, you know, part of me thinks it's a great photo opportunity for Trump to be seen with military personnel signing off this bill and, uh, you know, and it, and, it, you know, it certainly appeals to, to a sector of the U.S. population in that regard. And, and and I can see partly why he's done it. But I think underneath it all, he does recognize that the U.S.'s days of, of having this enormous, almost war machine across the world, those days are, are coming to an end, and rightly so, because it's an utter waste of U.S., well, taxpayers' money in funding all these these bases everywhere. And there's absolutely no need to have them, as we know.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Excellent points, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. There's, I think in terms of pro military pro individuals, I don't think you're going to find another president that's been more supportive of our uh, men and women in uniform. And I would like to think that, you know, hopefully somewhere at some point that, you know, we can own up to the responsibility that, you know, we do have a significant amount of, of veterans that come back home. They, 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 they drop out of the military, or they de-enlist or they service out their time. You know, they end up end up homeless, perhaps. Also, the issues with the uh, the veterans care, and then also the massive amount of the, the the suicide rate that's affecting our veterans with their their mental health. So, I I think for the most part, what definitely as a, as a country, we we can do better than that, and that we should. Uh, but as as you pointed out in here, in terms of cutting back and a little bit more accountability in terms of some of the funding that we spend in in Syria and Yemen. Uh, Those are good, good items to keep an eye on. Hopefully we can draw back from some of that funding, but then largely in part understanding that this funding goes directly to these uh, mega corporations uh, that uh, employ a significant amount of people. Um, I I don't know what percentage of the U.S. economy is in regards to the the military uh, or military industrial complex, but I guarantee you that that is, it's, it's fairly uh, significant in terms of manufacturing. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. But again, uh, you know, great talking points of what we discussed. Uh, but in the dying legacy media, they want to focus on the fact that, that Trump didn't acknowledge uh, John McCain. <laughs> um, let's shift gears a little bit, Paul, because some numbers came out in regards to what's happening with uh, consumer debt levels. And we've specifically, yesterday, we talked about about the economy, about potentially, you know, the the real surface numbers. So I'm getting a little bit trouble understanding that if if you know unemployment is is at all times low, if the economy is doing so well, then why is use U.S. household debt rising to the massive level in the tomb to 13.3 trillion dollars in the second quarter? Uh, this is reporting that Americans borrowing reached 13.29 trillion in the second quarter, up 454 billion dollars. From a year ago marking a 16th consecutive quarter of increases a new york federal reserve report released on tuesday showed uh that's that's fairly that's pretty eye-opening paul
1: yeah and i i think it's symptomatic and i know it's the case in in the uk that you know there's a lot of people employed in what would really amount to part-time jobs and earning what we would define as minimum wage which is which really is nobody can actually manage to, to afford to live on, and certainly it's questionable just the debt that people are going to. Never mind, sort of, you know, there's a lot of people who take payday loans in the UK, at ridiculous interest rates because their you know credit rating is so poor they can't get a you know a, a traditional loan. Not that I'm suggesting they necessarily should, anyway. But I think one of the most damning statistics, apart from this, ever. Inflating debt bubble that exists in the U.S. When it said in the, you know, what you're referring to, when it said the level of U.S. consumer debt was 618 billion higher than the previous peak of well 12.68 billion. Note in the third quarter of 2008, which was just at you know the cusp of the financial crisis. Uh, I mean, that's most damning that in fact we've never, no one's ever addressed the debt problem. It's just got worse. Okay, some people may argue, well, that's not a huge increase from then. But, you know, if you go through through a financial crisis, you would expect that the debt level shouldn't be actually higher than it was. It should have been significantly lower, and it's not in the process because everything is a debt-fueled economy in Western nations. They also said it was 19.2% above a post-global credit crisis low set in the second quarter of 2013, so it implies, obviously, you know, there was some understanding we have to get this debt level under control. But of course, in the process, that's not happened and it's just spiraled out of control in the last five years. And of course, we know it links to the home, autos or car industry, students and credit loans. And yet they're trying to link it with this idea, like you say, that there's there's almost full employment uh, in the US. And of course, the argument is, well, everyone can afford this because no one's having any problems, you know, paying back (laughs) their debt they can meet all the monthly payments or even though we've had seven interest rate rises in by the fed in in the last three years and they're saying oh well you know delinquencies are pretty low they're only about n- not even two and a half percent and uh and you know the pace of student loans turning seriously delinquent slowing down so oh, it's everything's fine as you know there's there's nothing to worry about but If you look at the actual figures, the amount of student loans has grown to 1.4 trillion. In the second quarter, okay, they say it's up 61 billion from a year ago. So the argument is it's starting to slow down. You know, auto debt's really more or less the same at 1.24 trillion. Credit card debt's gone up, you know, what is it, two or three percent, but it's you know, forty-five billion, so it's up nearly a billion. And mortgage debts. Now nine trillion and up three hundred billion from a year ago. So you could almost argue that, that that in essence people have just become exhausted with debt, and and in fact you know there's there's no room anymore. And part of that is interest rate rises because you know I don't necessarily people get locked in in the UK into fixed rate mortgages, and you can have fixed rate mortgages for a year, five years, so there's now ones for thirty years, whatever. But at some point you know. The interest rate rises; the debt's going to be passed on, and people who have credit cards, and know in the UK and I'm pretty sure to some years the, same in the US, they're never reflective of true interest rate. They're extortion at the rates they charge. And, you know, it's twenty odd, thirty percent, and and some are obviously significantly higher than that. So, it is this ever-growing debt bubble that's never going to go away. And it, so, you have all this consumer debt problem. You have the US debt of twenty-two trillion all these unfunded liabilities, which, as we said, is 250 300, maybe 400 trillion. I don't think anybody actually knows. And yet we're supposed to believe that, you know, that, that economy's stable. I mean, in any other period in history, if you'd said this, people would go, hang on, we're broke. You know, we're a third world economic nation. And yet now debt's you know, is regarded as the new credit. You know, it's fine. Don't worry. Everyone's in debt. They can pay it all back. But it's it's an impossibility i mean and how much of this debt's going to end up being written off and and what's the consequences of writing off the debt but i mean i know that in student debt you can't write it off so what mm-hmm. so what happens i mean at some point you there's going to be a squeeze because in the end it's like here in the uk the students with huge debt now, they're never going to be able to afford to buy a house and you know as the population ages more and more housing comes on the market there's no one going to be able to afford to buy it okay we're not at that point but look further down track in In the end the housing market is going to grind to a halt and of course the other big problem you have is in another 2008 financial crisis which will be on steroids then the housing market will collapse and uh, i can't make any predictions what would happen but if the housing market falls 40 50 60 percent i mean I'm not saying it's going to happen, but in Japan in the late 80s, housing market collapsed 90%. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen, but what happens when you have people with enormous negative equity because Mm -hmm. the housing market collapses? And then you've got the Fed's going, well, actually, we're just going to keep raising interest rates. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the way to resolve it. But because the problem is, in a way, part of the reason for raising interest rates, apart from trying to, they think they can restore some credibility and try and normalise the the economy. The other thing is there is rampant inflation. I mean, you know, unemployment's what twenty two, twenty three percent. Inflation's probably ten percent or eight oh, percent in the absolutely. US. And you, yes, I know in this from from in the UK. I you know, as I've said before, I you know, periodically I'll just look at old receipts. I keep them from from you know when you go food shopping, and you can see the price increase of. Ten percent increases and higher in this in in the year in in terms of food shopping and and then you've got in terms of bills. I mean, white goods certainly are getting cheaper. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And that's so there are swings and roundabouts, but predominantly the everyday things that people need to consume to survive and and to live are getting more and more expensive. And people's wages. I mean, that's the other thing. Look at the wage increases; they're not m- meeting with real inflation, and in fact. Even with the fudged inflation figures, that's often significantly lower, and people are, in relative terms, are getting worse and worse off. And 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 then often in the process, it's like we said with a couple of weeks ago with the US GDP figures for quarter two, which were you know over four percent. The reality is most of that was just consumer debt-driven spending. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is <laughs> that is not. Should be discounted from from um, from economic figures because it's not true a true reflection of a thriving economy. I mean, people are not spending money they have; they're spending money they don't have and having to pay it back later. And and it's just you know this mounting debt bubble is just is just another disaster waiting to happen. Along with I mean, also, it's symptomatic. I mean, you know, I don't know the exact debt figures for the UK, but they're rising and it's and it's just symptomatic of western nations and and of course, the other thing is people who anyone who had savings have exhausted them because they've got no interest, they don't get any interest on on their savings. you know people used to get four or five percent i mean of course, the QE and zero interest rate policy killed that stone debt, and so they don't make so there's not so people who save for retirement are exhausting the, uh, you know, their savings in the process. And yes. in the UK, if people cease to have any savings, then they're going to become more dependent on the state to get more benefits in retirement uh, to make up the shortfall. So it's just a vicious circle that will never end. And it's just going to to end up... You know, I'm not saying, like, for me, I don't think the auto car industry or any of this, but these sort of bubbles are the thing that's going to you know bring everything down but it's another contributory factor that people who are highly indebted can have major problems if um if we have another 2008 financial crisis which is an inevitability it's not not a question of if it's just a question of when
0: yes i mean just truly amazing to look at this and think of it in the terms of the debt driven economy that we have and to see it not only on a consumer base but also on a federal level now, this particular article tries to swing that as a as a good sign, meaning that the economy is doing well, that the employment is great. That's why people are taking on, you know, more debt. But I thought I think it it streams specifically back to the fact that these jobs that that you know paid the higher wages that it, the economy has shifted quite a bit over the last several years. And Paul, where I also get concerned of this is is just in the future. So for for any of our listeners that, that, that have children and to think that at some point there's going to be any type of, of social security programs, any type of those. Now, anyone that's banking their retirement strictly off of social security, you know, probably better wake up anyway. But it's just eye opening. It's very shocking what that projected. There's only so much debt that can, that can carry on. Now, some economists argue that, you know, you have to have debt in order for a currency to be viable. You have to have certain debt um there was a specific tweet that went out i can't remember who tweeted out that 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 pointed that out but however when you look at this massive amount of of debt that's basically created out of thin air and you take a look at whether it's pensions or money in people's banks bank accounts is that at some point when this debt load becomes so heavy that these loans cannot be paid off you know what happens at that point paul and that's that's where it gets concerning
1: well yeah and it's and it's another example everyone had uh... The sort of uh, soundbite of um, subprime mortgage. Well, subprime mortgage is a worse problem now than it was. And and there's also subprime in, in the auto loans uh, industry and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, subprime is a big problem. And, you know, I've heard some incredible stories about students in the US being given mortgages. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, students. <laughs> Yeah, because you know it's debt, so don't worry. You know you've you've got who knows how much actual student debt. Well, don't worry, just have some more debt. I mean, the problem is that this is we've been conditioned into almost believing that you know a massive amount of debt isn't it? Isn't it is a growth a factor in the economy now? And people don't even seem to reflect on the fact that well, it doesn't matter. So, you know, who cares if there's all this debt? We'll just create more debt because it creates the illusion of. Of prosperity and economic strength, but but in the end, of course, there comes a point where nobody's going to have any money to to pay for anything, and then literally the economy completely grinds to a halt. And that, and of course, there's always going to be people within who are always you know, never going to suffer. It. But it's the, really historically, it's the the so-called middle class who always get wiped out in. And that's gone out from history for hundreds of years, from the times of the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution and world, post-World War One in the UK, and the list goes on and on. Right? They're always the people who, and increasingly they've sucked more and more people into into that band, even though in reality they're not. And they're the ones who are highly leveraged with huge amounts of debt. And of course, when you go through some financial crisis, they're the ones who are going to suffer most and more than anyone. And this is the big problem. It's all well and good while you while you can keep propping up the illusion, but at some point that illusion is going to break down, and then there's going to be mayhem in the process. And that's the thing none of these, you know, political commentators ever talk about. They don't ever talk about the fact that, you know, in simple terms, if if I'm two hundred thousand dollars in debt, you don't go well. Here's another half a million. You know, don't worry, you can pay off the two hundred thousand. You know, and don't worry, you've got a whole bunch more debt to to manage. It's just a nonsense. But common sense has gone out the window, and that's been the case for pretty much the last uh, 10 years or so. And we're, we're, you know, fast approaching the layman event of of 2008, and that was the sort of precipitated the whole crisis and the collapse. But, But this time, in many senses, we're in a far worse shape individually and of course Western economies and the banks are in the process. I mean, everything's just bust. So if anyone really genuinely thinks there's, there's a way out of this, then, you know, I'm all ears, but I'm sorry. just that in reality, it's, it's just not possible.
0: Right. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Great points, Paul. Um, before we uh, shift gears into this, this next topic, I do want to let our uh, listeners know that uh, this is uh, pretty much, it's pretty, pretty disturbing, uh, this information that's that's coming out. So if you're sensitive around that and you choose not to listen, you may want to drop out of this uh, podcast at this point. Uh, the Also, the other thing that I want to state is that I, I firmly believe that if we would have potentially had a, a different type of administration that news like this, information like this, uh, prosecutions like this, Probably more than likely would have been covered up in the court systems. I don't think that these would be coming to, to premonition of things that involve. So, so Paul, we're getting reports. This is reported from Zero Hedge that over 300 Catholic pedos preyed upon 1,000 plus children amid systematic cover-up. A bombshell grand jury from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court concludes that over 300 members of the Catholic clergy. Molested over a thousand child victims amid a systematic cover-up by church leaders spanning over the course of seven decades. In the second major Catholic pedophile scandal this week, following a raid conducted in Chile at the Catholic Episcopal Conference. Now, Paul, I know that the the history regarding uh, the the Catholic Church, the things that have occurred in this. I did listen to a press uh, conference. Uh, that was reported I, I don't I didn't send you the link but I, I did listen to the press conference and it was just truly disturbing the criminality of what took place. You're you're talking about uh, priests impregnating young girls, having them have abortions. The the priests would buy jewelry for their victims, specifically gold crosses, to have them wear them so that other priests could identify those who are participants in this, uh, just truly disturbing news of what's taken place, and and this is this is on grand scale. This isn't an isolated thing. This has happened throughout the years, where these priests are, are are moved from city to city, potentially back to you know other parts of the country. Uh, this to me is one of those 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 crimes that are committed against men against children. And it's just just truly disturbing, Paul.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you're absolutely right. I think the one thing the Trump administration has done it it without that. I don't think the sort of um, I you know I can't really think of an adjective to to describe the revulsion that I you know I feel on this. And it's a statement to the obvious. And and people often say to me, "Look, you don't cover this sort of stuff." And no, you know, generally we don't. But you know, we. we and, the, you know, well, there are reasons why we don't deal with that, but it doesn't mean we're not appalled uh, by this behaviour. And absolutely, there's no doubt this is the tip of a gigantic iceberg. I mean, we've had situations in the UK and Ireland for quite a few years where you know, these sort of outrageous uh, behaviour and has been exposed, not to this extent uh, by any stretch. I mean, to have, you know, over 300 members of a clergy... And it goes on and says, of course, and it's absolutely true, you know, there was 1,000 victims identified, but the chances are there's countless more. I mean, it could be double, treble, who knows, quadruple the amount of people. I mean, as they say, some victims are going to be afraid to come forward. Some are so deeply traumatised that they'll never come forward. Some victims undoubtedly are no longer with us. And and it is, it's just, and and when they said we subpoenaed and reviewed half a million pages of internal documents it be excuse me it begins to put in context the extent of this problem and this is one enormous but small problem amongst a sea of massive problems and you know if there's one thing that has to come about it this all has to come out into the open because it's the one thing i think more than anything that will wake people up all the people who just refuse to accept all the financial tyranny and the geopolitical tyranny and everything's gone on they're not going to turn the blind eye to this they're going to go hang on what the hell's going on and it's a it's a way of waking people up and increasingly i think you're absolutely right we'll see more and more of these ginormous icebergs coming to the surface and and of course it's true as well you know loads of records might have been lost in in this case might have been destroyed we have no way of actually really getting to the bottom of exactly how many people you know were were abused and the extent of the abuse and, and you know they say over 300 members of a clergy i mean it's just it is staggering to to, to think of the extent and how many decades this has gone on and 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 you know it ha- at some point, this has to. And it, I'm sorry to say whether people in the Catholic Church have a problem with this. Well, that's their problem. Though. I don't care. You know. And it's not just the Catholic. All uh, all religious uh, abuse has gone on. It's not just Catholicism that's mm-hmm. the problem. It has to be brought into the public domain. And you know how how this is handled and how it's dealt with. You know, people need to be adjudicated. They need to. And you know. <clears throat> For the crimes they've committed, the the punishment needs to be commensurate with what they've done because, I mean, it, you know, as I said, there isn't an adjective from my perspective that I think is suitable. I mean, there's a lot I could use and there's a lot of very choice words I could use, but you know what, it doesn't even come close to to, to you know, discussing just how Utterly deplorable, despicable, and just—you know—it's absolutely—you know—there isn't there isn't a word. I don't think any word I use could come close. But you know, it said the grand jury scrutinised abuse allegations in dioceses that ministered to more than half the state's 3.2 million Catholics. So the question is, just how massive is this? If they've if they've uncovered one thing, we just have no way of going to the bottom of it because there's things that could have happened. 60, 70 80 50 years ago the people who committed the crimes are no longer with us and the people who were abused might no longer be with us either so but the important thing is is that the, the public becomes aware of this I know it's pretty horrific and for some people it's going to be very painful to have to, to to you know see this because they may have you know had similar experiences and they largely buried it and didn't want to ever come to the fore and they've tried to forget about it of course this is going to open up all the wounds for them but i think it's extremely important that um that these matters are dealt with and the other thing is this statute of limitation on these alleged crimes i'm sorry this has to stop Mm, you cannot have this statute of limitation so well this happened 50 60 whatever years ago let's just pretend it's not a problem and you know, and and the legal system just decides that, you know we're not going to deal with it. And then the other thing is, oh well, you know this has gone on for so long. You know we found that people are too old to be prosecuted. I'm sorry, absolutely not. You know, I it, it, these are just making excuses for despicable crimes that you know cannot, you know, that cannot be brushed under the carpet, and excuses made about statutes of limitation and people being too old it's just not acceptable and uh, and the question of course comes about is how was this covered up for so long i mean are we seriously trying to suggest to me that these 1000 plus victims and these 300 members of the catholic clergy that somehow all this was 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 contained and no one ever raised questions no one ever complained no one ever legally went to you know and, and said look i want to take out a prosecution against this i want this investigated are we seriously supposed to believe none of this ever happened i'm sorry i don't believe it so the question therefore comes in who else has been covering up this uh, systematic abuse that has gone on for decades and because there's got to be people somewhere because so i just simply don't believe no one reported it and you know did people go and they were discouraged from doing so were they actually threatened to not pursue things? We don't know, and we've got no way of knowing. But, yeah, it, the more these cases are exposed globally, it's one of the most important things that happen because I think it's the one of the f- real things that will wake a, a load of people up and say, well, okay, it's going on inside the Catholic Church or, or religions. It's going on inside Hollywood. It's going on inside every walk of life. And the sooner it comes out and is exposed, then I think it will go a long way to to waking a lot of people up and making them go, hang on, enough's enough. Because we know, I mean, as much as you know, from my own personal perspective, as deplorable as all the wars we've ever faced on on this planet, and and all the economic carnage and everything. When you when it comes down to the uh, systematic abuse of of children, women, and men for that matter, what that is. That is on a whole different level, and it's a whole different perspective that we have to take on it. And I applaud the fact that these things are becoming in the public domain. And for that, I think, you know, we have to thank the Trump administration for doing so. And we just have to hope that this is just the the tip of an iceberg and more and more of this comes to the fore. And there needs to be accountability. And frankly, I don't care what happens to, to the Catholic Church or anyone else in the process. You know, they... There's, there's at some point there's going to have to be accountability on some level for what's going on. And, uh, and it's, and sweeping under the carpet, uh, as it has been for decades, those days have gone. And I just hope that, you know, also, I hope these stories give people courage of conviction to come forward and say, look, you know, this happened to me. And, and, you know, maybe if there's, you know, people do, it will help to get investigations open. But again, the big headache is how the hell do you manage these investigations when it's this enormous? I mean, you know, as we said half a million pages of documents that were subpoenaed and reviewed. I mean, it shows the extent of the abuse. And and if you extrapolate that across the entire United States, you extrapolate that across, okay, the UK is a small country, but let's say Europe and the rest of the world in the process, it's an enormous undertaking, but, it has to be done and it has to happen as, as much as anything else for the, to give some dignity to the victims and what they've suffered and, and they've suffered in silence. And who knows what damage it has done to them. We talk about military personnel and post-traumatic stress disorder and, and how they've had mental health problems because of it. Well, the same is applicable to, to, to these people and they've grown up probably a lot of them have grown up in silence about this and the damage it will have done to them in the process. So yeah, more power to the elbow of these investigations and this disgusting, um, behavior, which is being polite has got to be exposed and it has to come to an end. And it, and it's one chapter in humanity's history that everybody should be fully aware of. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I, you're, you're right. Paul, in terms of finding the right words, <laughs> I, I think this defines us as a, a society. Do we pretend to ignore these things? Do we pretend to uh, follow the, if this doesn't impact me, that, that, that I'm not concerned? And you know, my prayers are out there for the victims, right? Because they're the ones who potentially are dealing with this for the rest of their lives and how they're impacted from this. But I think at the at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, is that there does need to be conversations, conversations in the open that people need to bring forth uh, to to the congregation, to the to, to specifically to the Vatican, to say specifically, obviously, you've known the history of this, you've known. Uh, this article goes on to state that Pope Francis himself summoned the entire bishops' conference to Rome after he said that he made grave errors in judgment. In the case of Barros, and I believe Barros was was convicted in Chile that he'd actually observed uh, some of the abuse of happening of children and and ignored it. And I think I think since then he's been removed. I think those questions need to be answered, Paul, in order for this to move forward to hold those responsible, those accountable. But for us to ignore potentially ignore this as a society and not talk about it at some point we will be held accountable for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be, a, a, we, the, the, you know, the world in general needs to to be able to say to these victims, you know, you can come forward and, and discuss it with, with the appropriate authorities and not feel that, you know, because it's, it's a sad fact, but cost quite often people who are abused, feel ashamed. And it's, and, you know, I mean, it's, and, and they have absolutely, yeah, I do
0: what I, you know, yeah, you know, they have
1: absolutely nothing at all to feel ashamed of. I mean, but you know, you know, I can only say thank God I never experienced anything like that in my life, and I can't even begin to to put myself in the minds of those who have, and I wouldn't even pretend to, because it's an insult to them to try and even do that. All I can we could say is. You know, people need to be given the opportunity and I think the floodgates need to open. And, you know, if it destroys religions or the Catholic Church in the process, well, I'm sorry, that ha- that's just, an, you know, has to happen. I mean, we can't have this covering things up. I mean, you know, we had, you know, clear indications of, of abuse inside you know hollywood we've had abuse inside the entertainment industry and the list goes on and on and on and that's not just in in the us it's also you know it became obvious in the uk as well and you know people in these positions of authority have have committed unspeakable crimes against against minors and not just minors of course adolescents and adults in the process and you know th- this has to because it's a scourge on humanity and that has to that has to end and it and undoubtedly it hasn't ended i don't i'm not not saying i don't know i don't think it's as bad as it was say 70 years ago but i'm certain it, it still goes on and every person who suffers this anywhere in the world it has to end and and everything that needs to be done to make that happen if we talk about international cooperation well if that doesn't get nations of the world to cooperate with each other and work you know and if someone's wanted for extradition in another country, and there's evidence, extradite them, make them stand trial, and let's let's make an example of these disgusting, despicable, and they're not even sub, they're not even subhuman. I mean, there's there's no word to describe it. So, let you know, let's work it, have an international cooperation to deal with this problem and address it, and uh, and and that has to happen, and and I hope that it most certainly does. I don't want us to go through this big paradigm shift and the world to change and these kind of deplorable crimes to go unaccounted for. And, and, and a large amount of humanity remains unaware of what's gone on because the extent of it, I think would terrify people if they actually knew just how bad it was. And, uh, and certainly if you look at the amount of people who've committed these sort of crimes against you know, against adults as well and, and everything else has gone, I think it would stagger people. The extent of it, it, I mean it's just probably off scale from any of our comprehension so yeah I just hope that this does happen because I think it's part of the the sort of healing process for humanity across the world that this Absolutely. This Absolutely. has to happen. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Paul, uh, what else is on your radar? Uh, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit at, uh, yeah, any where, other topics
1: to discuss? Yeah, where the hell did you go after that? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah. it's a bit tough. Tra- I mean one thing I, I, I think was interesting that came to light with which talked about sort of lawmakers in the US are seeking to summon a this constitutional convention and they're looking to introduce amendments restricting the power of the federal government, which I think we'd all agree would make sense. I mean, it says... You know, apparently the U.S. was three or four years away from the next convention, but the U.S. is failing um, and to, to address the existing problems. And I think, you know, it needs to be the idea of a convention of states. And it's the state legislatures that themselves have to call from it. And I think it, it's either two-thirds or three-quarters of the states to call for it before it happens. Now, apparently, that, that, you might be able to correct me, but I think the last constitutional convention took place 230 years ago.
0: Yeah, that, that 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 is correct, according to this article I just pulled up on the Guardian.
1: I mean, yes. I think it was, yeah, I, I read somewhere recently about this. And, of course, the argument is, you know, and I think the question was, you know, they collect all this huge amount of taxes and they still borrow all this additional money. And, you know, what's going on in that regard? I think the whole idea that there should be term limits for Congress and Senate and for the UK Parliament, I absolutely agree. I, I think there should be term limits on federal office holders, and uh, and that's for you know across the board because that if you then that would impinge on their power and their ability to 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 stay in long term and cause damage. You've got someone who's in the Senate in Congress for, for decades. I think that's a huge problem. I think if you have term limits, it means people's ability to to influence and subvert the the, the process, you know, the process, of the Constitution, everything else would would be massively diminished. So. I think there are important things. They need to talk about a balanced budget term, They've, as you said, term limits. They've talked about repealing the Seventeenth Amendment, which returns the election of senators to state legislatures instead of direct election. Um, and 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 the, and the kind of list goes on. But I think there are an important ideas that, you know, I'm not saying we should. They should rewrite the U.S. Constitution you know, and, and destroy the protection of rights. But I think there are things that need to be taken into account. And I do think term limits need to be applied. I don't know what your feeling is on that, but I think that's a big issue. And I think that should happen in all Western governments.
0: And, yeah, in terms of the, the freedom, the liberty, the original concept of a federal government, to see where it is today and the fact that, that states potentially could be losing rights in the battle that states have you know at the federal level you know time and time again i challenge the fact that you know we that how many times have we heard legislatures that that we're gonna we're gonna go there we're gonna we're gonna have term limits we're gonna do all these things and then you take a look paul at the number of days the number of working days that our legislatures serve in dc i think they work like hundred days, maybe even not even hundred days, like 75 days out of the course of a year they actually have in legislation. So, so why do we need a full-time federal government? You know, there, there there's so many changes that could be made. And then more importantly, preserving the right of individual liberty, individual freedoms, that somewhere that message has gotten lost along the way where too many people, had a great discussion with, about this yesterday, with, with, a, with a couple of friends is the fact that why do so many people turn to the government for answers? Why, why is it that people uh, would would not put more faith and trust in humanity of taking care of, of the poor, taking care of those in need versus a, a federal bureaucracy program um, and, and to preserve those things, to get back to the state's rights, to get back to individual rights and liberty, um, we are quickly approaching a defining moment because I think there's more discontent now than ever with the political process in America. And that be whether you're a de- Democrat or, or Republican, uh, we have a very outdated system. And I believe that system no longer reflects uh, individual liberty. You know, we live currently in a political system that special interests, uh, corporations and big money defines who gets elected. And who gets to Washington D.C. and, yeah. uh, some, and something needs to change. Paul, our system is very broken.
1: Yeah, and it's the same in the U.K. I mean, this, you know, let's not let's not just point the finger at the U.S. I think it's it's true of the huge vast bulk of Western nations. But to have the last constitutional convention 230 years ago is is proof of the pudding because the you know you need to have a constitutional convention where everyone gets around behaves like adults discusses the issues and actually comes to some sensible agreement on how things need to be slightly tweaked to make it fit for purpose in, you know, in the 21st century, because clearly it's not. And, and things have been subverted and it's, and it's one you know, people talk about how do you resolve big problems in the U S well, I think this is one of those examples. That's how you begin to, to resolve problems by, looking at things like that resolving the issues and making you know the federal government making governance full stop far more fit for purpose in the 21st century than it because clearly it's failed the us it's clearly failed the uk and it's failed countless other nations and there does need to be some understanding that but i think there's you know the question is are there still too many people of the vested interest to keep this um, system going the way it is even though it's abysmally fails for for the average american the average british person etc etc and uh, but there definitely needs to be moves made to to address these problems and say okay yeah as what was said you know we collect one half trillion in tax money yet we still borrow 680 billion why are we doing that there needs to be far more accountability for actions that are made and that you know, if you want to talk about draining the swamp and resolving problems, that is a clear example of how it will have to come about. And at some point, whether the, however the political system unfolds in the new paradigm, and I think you know, I don't think the Republicans and the Democrats or Labour and Conservative will exist as they do now. There'll be certainly change in the political system, but at the end of the day we still have to go okay, how, how is a nation going to be governed? It needs to be governed a lot less with a lot less stringency that we need to have light government, not know heavyweight draconian government but certainly there needs to be some element of government and how how do we address this problem and we need to start thinking about that and making those changes and that will go a long way to removing the corruption that exists because clearly there's no doubt that there are people inside the u.s political system and and the u.k political system who are causing major problems and the fact they've been around for decades and and or considerable period of time are a bigger roadblock and an obstruction in that process. Now, people say, oh, yeah, well, we can vote these people. Well, yes, that's true, you can. And that is is one answer to the problem. But it doesn't resolve the overall problems that exist. And this is why I think there's a bit of an oversimplification of what draining the swamp means. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't just mean getting rid of these people. It means making fit for purpose all the instruments that are in place that were supposed to, you know, from 230 years ago this is how governance was supposed to to work i you can guarantee the people who came about with the last constitutional convention will be looking now going well that all went spectacularly wrong but after over 230 years of course it will be because think about how we used to live 230 years ago to how we live now it's an inevitability it's not fit for purpose and you know i think these are sensible mature discussions that has to happen and you know and we hope from the u.s perspective that does come about because i think that will make a big difference in the long run absolutely provided people provided people have a mature you know <laughs> adult type attitude to it and that is you know that is the big problem because there's no doubt you know the the republicans and the democrats there's plenty of people on both sides of of the house who resist as they say they resist anything that's impinging on their power they don't they want to see things change because it's a gravy train. They don't want to stop. Well, the gravy train's going to stop. And the other situation is, OK, if we remove all these people from office or by whatever, however that happens, there's going to be this enormous void that needs to be filled with people who can govern a country, who are capable of making decisions in the best interests of the American or the British people. You can't just get rid of them all and say, right, the country will govern itself i know there's a lot of people who think that's that, that utopian view that the, you know everyone can just govern themselves well in time ty- in the future yeah i think we'll have more empowerment to do things for ourselves but that can't happen overnight you can't switch you know from one system to another it takes a period of time you've got to adjust people's perspective too many people are totally reliant on the states like you you know you say you have conversations with people and say, you know why are we so dependent well people on on the system well People have been made to have to be dependent. But to change that's going to take a long time. You've got to change people's mindsets. And so therefore, you, even if we do move radically in a different direction, it's going to take five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I, I can't put a, a time frame on it. So we're going to have to have governance that adjusts accordingly. And, of course, if we change that, you know, the Constitution in the U.S., it's going to have to, you know, change to some extent to reflect those changes, but it needs to be done in a mature way that benefits all the American people and not, you know, the so-called. Well, it's not even one percent. It's you know, it's the deep state, the cabal who, you know, who are resistant to this change. But I'm sure I don't know. I can't speak, but I don't. I don't know many people in the U.S. Uh, UK political system who I think have any real interest in in bettering the lives of people. There are some of them. And I'm sure there's some of them in the UK, uh, the U.S., and I'm sure people will know plenty who are. So they're, they're the basis for change. But that is a big that is a big problem that needs to be addressed. And that's why I say don't trivialize what this process is. It's a huge monumental shift of attitude. And, you know, and, you know, I'm not being rude, but there's plenty of people who are aware of what's going on and um, and understand but are, you know, but equally, if, how are they going to approach the future? What do they think is going to happen? And and that you know, they're going to probably have to m- marry their expectations with the reality of how things are going to unfold. Because as more, as awake as they are, there's plenty of people who don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when all these changes happen, how are they going to react? Are they going to be resistant to the change? And how do you approach that? So you never never look at the world through your own eyes and your own understanding look at it from the lowest common denominator of someone who knows nothing and then try and understand how you bring about that change and then you start to appreciate the the you know the, the severity and the enormity of the, the challenges we face but you know if you want to have the world and you want to you have freedom freedom comes at a price and it's ultimately enormous self responsibility and that's the self-responsibility of all humanity. And it's something, you know, we have to take very seriously and I'm sure people will do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for joining today. Please share with our listeners how they can learn more about your work at the serious report. Uh, Please go ahead.
1: Well, thanks to Jane. A pleasure as ever. It's always, always great to, to come on rogue money and all rogue news now. And, you know, we dealt with some subjects I don't normally discuss. So, um, and I think this is probably a better forum for us to do things like that. But yeah, in terms of, we're well, obviously the seriousreport.com, that's S I R I U S. We've got the website, we've got the, the Twitter account, which we obviously use quite a bit more than we used to. And yes, we have our subscription service and you can read all the details on the site. And, you know, we, the things we discuss on rogue news, we don't discuss in the podcast and we go into a huge more detail about, finance geopolitical events etc and um, and we do five of those equivalent a week and uh, and i think we've done 400 and 477 now wow so wow. and you have access to all of those we've had some people who subscribed who've gone back and listened to every single one of them which i think was was incredible <laughs> they probably <laughs> wow. deserve they deserve a number of gold medals to, to put should, up listening yes. to me to me for 477 episodes. (laughs) But no, it's a pleasure. And, you know, if you want to do tomorrow, I'm happy to do tomorrow as well, if that suits you.
0: Yeah, I will definitely will take you up on that, Paul. Uh, I know our fans, our listeners love uh, hearing your perspectives. And uh, obviously, I I love it when I get the opportunity to listen as well. So uh, for our fans, thank you so much for uh, listening in. Uh, Please make sure to leave comments in the comment sections. Uh, like, subscribe, uh, share in your network. Uh, just to let everyone know today's programming. Again, I will follow up uh, with uh, the Crypto Boys to see if they're going to be doing a cryptocurrency show later on. And then also tonight, just a, a courtesy FYI, I'll be posting it as well. Uh, we are doing a special broadcast tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll have the opportunity to be air- interviewing Aaron Elizabeth with Health Nut News and uh, really love Aaron's work that she does, exposing so much at HealthNut News. So, I've been trying to get her on for a while. So tonight looks like we're going to be able to make that happen. That's 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, Paul, thank you again uh, so much for joining this morning. And, uh, oh, everybody- real pleasure. Yeah. Uh, all right. Take care, everyone. Enjoy your day. Uh, this is CJ in London. Paul, we're over and out. Take care, everyone.